field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost every summer, my family and I take a trip up to Colorado to get out of the Texas heat, and we always pass through my hometown of Amarillo, which is in the Texas panhandle, and every time we enter into the panhandle, a wave of nostalgia hits me, and uh, I do what any normal, rational person would do. Uh, when they enter the Texas Panhandle, and that is I make my family listen to 90s country music. 
I make them listen to 90s country music and they appreciate it deeply. I'll just tell you that right now. They always rejoice with me when I put it on in the car. Tim McGraw just happens to be one of my favorites. In uh, the mid-90s, he had an album that came out, and one of the songs on that album is called Not a Moment Too Soon. That's a great song to two-step to and to enjoy. And uh, every time I hear that song, I get hit with West Texas nostalgia. You might think that's weird. Just go with me here, okay? Um, Tim McGraw's song, Not a Moment Too Soon, goes like this. At least the chorus goes like this. Not a moment too soon, not a minute to spare, You touched my heart when I didn't have a prayer. In my darkest hour, with my soul filled with gloom, your sweet love saved me. Not a moment too soon. Not a moment too soon. In the nick of time, we might put it. That's a song about a love story, but it's also, in a a sense, a song about Advent. It's a song about how God loves us and reaches out to save us. Not a moment too soon. Just in the nick of time. That's what Advent, Christmas, is about. It's about God coming to rescue his people. And it's also one of the reasons we're studying Ruth, this amazing short story in the Old Testament during the Christmas season. That's what Ruth is about. Ruth is about God's rescuing faithfulness, God's rescuing love, which he gives to you and which he gives to me just in the nick of time. Not a moment too soon, right when we need it. We started this story last week We met Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and uh, we found that they are, when we get to chapter 2, in need of someone to save them without question. Uh, In chapter 1, they lost everyone that they knew. Their husbands died. Naomi's sons died. These are women uh, in great duress. They're women in great duress. They're at the end of their ropes. I'm sure you've seen uh, lists similar to the one I looked at this this week lists uh, about the greatest stress inducers in our lives. You can probably even guess what is on that list. Things like a loss of spouse or a loss of child or relocation, especially when it's a long distance away or financial strain. Those are the things that cause us to be the most anxious, to be the most afraid, to be the most worried. And Ruth and Naomi have experienced all of that. They've experienced all of that just in Ruth chapter 1. They left Moab and headed back to Israel, specifically to the town of Bethlehem where Naomi was from. Naomi didn't want Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to go with her. But we saw last week in chapter 1 that Ruth decided to pledge herself to Naomi. She decided to covenant herself to Naomi and return to Bethlehem with her. Even though Ruth is a Moabite, she's not an Israelite, she's not one of God's Old Testament people, she commits herself to Naomi, her Israelite mother-in-law. She shows her faithfulness. The word we looked at last week in Hebrew is hesed. She shows Naomi hesed. And Ruth did this even though Naomi didn't even want Ruth to return to her or with her. I mean, you can imagine what's going on in Naomi's head and in Naomi's heart. She's a bitter lady who thinks that God is now against her because of all the bad things that's happened in her life. And she's basically saying to Ruth, hey, Ruth, I appreciate all your fine words about going where I go and staying where I stay and dying where I die. That's all really romantic and uh, makes for a nice speech. But really, Ruth, why would you want to go with me? Why should a healthy young woman like you Go with a a doomed old albatross like me, who's basically returning to a land of a God who has abandoned me and left me and who's been determined to get even with me for my shortcomings. I just want to go and bury myself in a hole and die alone. 
That's basically where Naomi's at, at the end of Ruth chapter 1. But Ruth commits herself to Naomi and goes with Naomi nevertheless. So as we move into Ruth chapter 2, we find two women, Ruth and Naomi, who need someone to help them. They need someone to help them, not a moment too soon. They're under great stress, under great duress. They're in real trouble. I don't know uh, how many of you are familiar with that show, Undercover Boss. I don't even know if that show's still on. I think I've watched one or two episodes of Undercover Boss. Uh, It's a show in which the CEO or the owner of a business will, in disguise, go and work in one of his or her stores or uh, warehouses, etc., while the cameras are on in secret. And the boss is getting to watch how his employees interact with customers and how they interact with one another and how the managers of the stores treat the employees, etc., etc., etc. And uh, the one particular episode I watched, the CEO of this clothing company dressed up as an employee in one of the stores, and he spent the whole day with this young woman who really was a remarkable worker. She did an amazing job, and the boss was almost kind of tempting her to steal and to do this and to do that, but she refused to do it. She proved herself to be a faithful worker. And as you might expect, at the end of the episode, all is revealed, and the camera sets on both the young woman employee and the owner and interviews them. And one thing the owner says to this young lady is, you're everything that we want this company to be about. You represent the finest of what this company can be. And, and the lady's crying. It's a very emotional moment because the owner gives her a very large cash gift as a result of her faithful work. And then the lady, this is what I remember about the episode, says this. Um, this is the only time in my life that everyone, anyone has ever given me a break. This is the only time in my life that anyone has ever given me a break. I, I wonder if you have ever felt that way. Can I just get a break Naomi and Ruth need to catch a break. That's not a phrase you'll find in the Bible. The biblical language is more like favor. Naomi and Ruth need favor. In fact, that word is used three times in this chapter. It's used in verse 2, it's used in verse 10, it's used in verse 13. Favor is what they're after. That word can also be translated grace. Naomi and Ruth need grace. And in this chapter, they catch a break. In this chapter, they receive favor. In this chapter, they begin to experience grace. It's seen on the surface of the story through the favor of this guy, Boaz. And it's also seen underneath the story, underneath the narrative, through the favor of God. So I want to make that our outline as we study these verses just for a couple of minutes together. Two points, okay? The favor of Boaz first, and then secondly, the favor favor of God. Favor of Boaz, favor of God. So in verse 1... The narrator, in this brilliant literary ploy, by the way, introduces us to this guy, Boaz, who's the closest living relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And the author tells us that he's an important man who lives in Bethlehem, that he's also a worthy man, which means he's a good man. He's He's a righteous man. And then we pick up on the story again. Naomi's locked up in her house in Bethlehem, unwilling to do anything, so stuck in bitterness that she can't even bring herself to go look for food. And so Ruth says, I've got to take care of us. Something's got to be done if we're going to eat. And so she asks Ruth if she can go out and find food for the women to eat. You see it there in verse 2. Naomi's paralyzed by grief, but Ruth is ready to take action. And they're going to starve to death. 
if Ruth doesn't do something. And so Ruth asks Naomi if she can go find a field in Bethlehem to glean in. And hopefully, she says, verse 2, she'll find favor in someone's eyes. So Naomi agrees and sends Ruth out to glean. Now, gleaning, gleaning is something you might not be familiar with. Gleaning was an Old Testament provision. It was given in the law of God to the people of Israel in which sojourners or foreigners and the poor and widows and orphans were to be cared for. It was sort of like a working welfare program in Israel. It was the process by which those who were harvesting barley or wheat would intentionally leave behind some of the harvested grain on the, on the edges of the field so that the poor and the aliens could come in and work to gather it up and have enough food to eat. That was the practice that God had commissioned for Israel to do to care for the poor. However, this rarely happened in ancient Israel because, shocker, people are greedy. People are uh, evil because sin exists. And so very infrequently were the poor actually able to go and do these sorts of things. And if they did do these sorts of things, it was really, really dangerous, especially if you're a single woman, which is why throughout the chapter you might have noticed Naomi and Ruth are so cautious about her safety. So Ruth, despite the great risk she's taking, has to do something. So she goes into a field, not knowingly the field of Boaz, and begins to glean. She works all day, and then in verse 5, Boaz shows up. He notices Ruth, and he asks about her. Boaz's foreman there in the fields says, yeah, this is the, the young Moabite lady that came back with Naomi a few weeks ago from Moab, and they've just come back to town, and she's been here all day working. And then Boaz acts. Boaz, well, Boaz shows Ruth favor. In fact, you can see two distinct kinds of favor, two distinct types of grace that Boaz shows to Ruth in the story. Look with me. First, Boaz shows Ruth undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. Now listen, in a sense, all favor is undeserved. Grace by definition is undeserved. If you deserve that which you get, it is not grace. If you deserve that which you get, if you had it coming to you, that's just wages. That's just justice. No, grace or favor is getting something that you definitely don't deserve. And in the Bible, to be honest with you, grace and favor is often getting the opposite, the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is favor in the face of not deserving. And this story of Boaz and Ruth is really at pains to show how highly unnatural and how highly irregular and how highly abnormal, how undeserved the favor that Boaz gives to Ruth is. Where do we see that? Did you notice how often in the story the author reminds us that Ruth is a Moabite? I mean, if you turned Ruth chapter 2 in as your English paper, you would probably not get a very good mark because you're repeating the same thing over and over and over. I mean, every time Ruth is mentioned in the story, the author reminds us she's a Moabite. By the way, she's a Moabite. Did you remember she's the lady that came from Moab? She's the Moabite woman. Why is the author doing that? I mean, it seems like a bit of overkill, right? Well, the reason is that for an Israelite, for an Israelite to show favor in this culture to a Moabite was highly unusual. It was highly undeserved. In fact, it was actually 
illegal. According to the law of Moses, it was illegal. Look in Deuteronomy. Well, you don't have to look there. I'm going to read it. Deuteronomy 23. This is a story about God telling the Israelites how to treat Moab. Because when Israel was passing through the land of Moab on their way out of Egypt into Canaan, the Moabite king hired a magician. He hired a sorcerer whose name was Balaam to put a hex on the Israelites, to curse them. That didn't work out so well for Balaam or for Moab. But as a result of that, God pronounces a curse on Moab. In Deuteronomy 23, God says, No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. You shall not seek their peace. You shall not seek their prosperity all your days forever. That's what Israelites have been taught to do towards Moabites. Can you believe that? So Boaz is... He's doing an extraordinary thing here, an extraordinary thing in his kindness to Ruth. You know, he he tells her, verse 11, I've heard of how kind you were to Naomi, but that does not in any way obligate Boaz to do any of these things for Ruth, but he does. For this foreign woman, this stranger, this person upon whom he should and could heap scorn, he gives favor. It's undeserved favor. I can't help but think when I read this story of another story in the New Testament of Jesus treating another foreign woman with favor. Remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes to the well in the middle of the day to get some water and there's a Samaritan woman by herself there and Jesus speaks to her and loves her and the woman is stunned that a Jewish man would speak to a Samaritan woman and Jesus offers her water of life. And he says to her at the end of John chapter 4, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing for Ruth. He's allowing her to reap for that which she did not labor. Boaz shows Ruth undeserved favor. Now listen, this is important. Why? Why would Boaz do this? Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a righteous man. He's nice. Maybe he's attracted to Ruth and wants to be kind to her, although that has no merit in the text. There's no evidence in the text at this point that Ruth has some sort of crush or that Boaz has some sort of crush on Ruth. So why does he show her undeserved favor? Here's how the Bible works. The reason that people show undeserved favor in the Bible and the reason that people show undeserved favor and grace to others in the Christian life is because they have a deep awareness that they are recipients of undeserved favor themselves. They have a deep awareness that they've been given grace, something they didn't deserve from God. And those who show great grace to others are undoubtedly those who have become deeply aware of the own reception of grace they have gotten from God. People become generous and show favor and give grace when they have a growing awareness of the depth of grace that's been given to them from God on a vertical level. Some of you may have experienced that in your lives. I've experienced it in mine. I think I've told this story before, but when I was a senior in high school, I was applying for colleges, and uh, I wanted to go to Baylor. That was my top choice, and I got into Baylor, barely. High school is not a great time for me. Got into Baylor, uh, but didn't get any scholarship money. And as you know, Baylor's not a cheap place to go to school. And so it was looking like for my first year, I was going to have to stay in, uh, in Amarillo and go to a junior college and then maybe transfer to Baylor, which would have been fine. That would have been fine. I would have done well. But 
To this day, I don't know who did this. Someone in my father's church reached out to my family and said, hey, I want Luke to be able to go to Baylor. And I want him to be able to go to Baylor for four years, and so I'm going to pay for his first year of college. Uh, I want to be anonymous. I don't want anyone to know who I am, but tell me how much it is, and I'll cut the check. And uh, that's, you know, it's been 25 years ago now or so, and I, I can't believe that still. And, and when I think about that, you know what it does in me? It gives me a gratitude that hopefully over time is spawning in my heart a spirit of generosity. Because those who have been given favor are those who show favor. That's what Boaz is doing. Boaz gives undeserved favor to Ruth. The second thing I want you to see about what Boaz, Boaz does regarding favor, though, is that it's tangible favor. It's not just undeserved, it's tangible. What do I mean? Boaz doesn't just come up to Ruth and say, hey, Ruth, I hear things have been really tough for you lately. Let me pray for you. Give her a little pastor pat on the back. Have a good day. Hope things turn out all right. Two thumbs up. Glad you're here in Bethlehem. And then heads off back to his mansion, right? Boaz helps Ruth by generously meeting her actual felt needs. I mean, look at what he does. First, he allows her to glean in his field. And verse 8, verse 9, to drink from the well that the workers drink from, which was an extraordinary provision, by the way. And then she ends up taking home an ephah of barley. And for the two or three of you that don't know what that is, uh, it's like 35 pounds. 35 pounds of barley. And then he invites her to a meal, and he offers her bread and, and wine. And you've got to imagine, Ruth has to be starving at this point. This is almost certainly the first time she's had a full stomach since she left Moab. That's hard for us to get because none of us are ever starving. But Ruth is. And then Boaz offers her protection, verse 15 and 16. And he offers her a permanent place to come and glean in his field until harvest season ends, verse 22. What's the point? Boaz doesn't just talk about grace. Boaz doesn't just export the activity of being generous to his cronies. No, Boaz, he doesn't just write Ruth a check. He gets involved in showing this destitute woman favor personally. And again, this is the point in the text where we often will impose our modern sensibilities on the story and say, well, Boaz likes Ruth. He's got a crush on her. No guy is this nice to a girl unless he wants to take her on a date. You can think that if you want. It's just not at all evident in the story. That's your only problem. Boaz is doing this because he's, again, received grace and favor from the Lord. Boaz's behavior flows out of his heart for God. It flows out of his understanding of who God is. Boaz shows Ruth favor and he makes tangible sacrifices for her because he understands the heart of God for people. And you know what? The same thing is true for you. How do you see God? That's one of the questions that the Holy Spirit asks you through this story. How do you see God? What is your view of God? If you see God, if you see God primarily as a boss who tolerates you, if you see God as a boss who tolerates you, then that is how you're going to treat people, especially when they need grace, especially when they have not lived up to your expectations. But if you've experienced the true heart of God seen in the gospel, if you've experienced God's kindness towards you when you know you do not deserve it, then, then you are empowered to unleash the resources God has given you to care for the needs of others, 
even when they don't deserve it. And that's what we see here in Boaz's life, and we're going to see it again next week. So Ruth and Naomi get favor. They get favor for Boaz. So we could, I guess, wrap it up here if we wanted to. I'm not going to, so don't get too excited. Um, This is an amazing story about Boaz being kind to Ruth and Naomi, and we could just close up and say, okay, go do likewise. Let's pray. Go be like Boaz. Be nicer to people. Treat people with kindness. Show others favor. Those are all good things to do, and I want us to do those things. But if that's all we get, then we're really missing the true heartbeat of this story. We're missing what's really happening behind Boaz's actions and attitudes. We're missing the place of this story in the, uh, the entire story of the Bible. We're missing the engine that actually empowers the spiritual life. So let's ask, what's really going on in this story? What's really going on here? Or to put it, put, to put it more bluntly, who's really behind all of this? Look in verse 3. Almost universally, uh, commentators, people that write books about Ruth, say that this is the single most important verse in Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come, you could translate that, by a stroke of luck, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, literally, the author says here, her chance chanced upon part of the field. Her chance chanced upon his part of the field. He says, this just happened by chance. Wouldn't you know it? How coincidental. By a stroke of luck, Ruth just happened to show up on the field of the one guy who's Elimelech's closest relative and has the resources to help her. Wouldn't you know it? Now, what's happening? Well, the author isn't saying, I hope you get the same kind of luck that Ruth did. This this is the Bible. He's being ironic. He's saying, this is actually not by chance at all. This is the hidden hand of God at work. Think about it. What are the odds? I mean, think about this. What are the odds that Ruth would just happen to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi right at the beginning of barley harvest? And what are the odds that Ruth and Naomi, uh, or that Ruth, would just so happen to go to the field of the most powerful living relative of Elimelech? And what are the odds that Boaz would just so happen to get to the field to see that Ruth was there, and then that he would ask about her? And what are the odds that Boaz's foreman would have heard Ruth's story? And what are the odds that Boaz, upon hearing that, would have had his heart softened towards Ruth and then approached her? Was it just good luck? Is it just an amazing coincidence? Is it Ruth finally just catching a break? No. No. The whole point, the whole point the author is at pains to have you see, is that the favor of Boaz to Ruth, the favor of Boaz to Ruth is merely the conduit of the greater favor of God to Ruth. The favor of Boaz to Ruth is the conduit of the greater favor of God to Ruth even though Ruth can't see it, even though Naomi believes that God has abandoned her, God is at work. He's at work behind the scenes, providentially orchestrating everything to advance his good purposes in the lives of these destitute, poor, and broken women. When our kids were younger, we used a children's catechism with them 
Catechism is just a fancy word for a series of questions and answers that is intended to form to form you in the way of Jesus. And one of the answers to this catechism, one of the questions and answers was, can you see God? Now, that's a very simple question in one way, on the one hand, and on the other, it's incredibly profound. Can you see God? And the answer is, no, but God always sees me. Can you see God? No, but God always sees me. Now, that is true, and you might, if you're a good, solid Presbyterian, I like catechism, agree with that right here. But do you believe that? Do you believe that? Has that seeped into your spiritual self? If it has, that has transformative power. It has transformative power because it tells you in this story that God is the one arranging everything that happened in Ruth's life, tragic though it was, for her ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. This, this story is like a live-action version of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the what? Good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Listen, listen. Here's what Ruth is telling you. Here's what it's pressing into your heart. The amazing truth of the gospel is that for those who are connected to Jesus Christ, For those that are connected to Jesus Christ, every single thing that happens to us in our lives is somehow going to be used by God for our ultimate joy. Every single thing that happens in your life is somehow going to be used by the architect and master of all things for your ultimate good. Can you see God? Oftentimes, listen, oftentimes the answer is no. No, I know I don't theologically see him because he's a spirit, but I also don't see what he's doing in this. I don't see what he's doing in this. The thing to think in those moments is he always sees me. And not only does God see you, God loves you. Just like God loved Ruth. Just like God loved Naomi. He always is at work to care for you and to protect you. William Cooper C-O-W-P-E-R, it sounds like Cowper, but it's spelled, pronounced Cooper, was an 18th century Christian hymn writer who, uh, honestly, he was crazy. Uh, he had severe depression and spent a lot of time in his life in, a, in an insane asylum. And he actually got converted in the middle of the 18th century in, a, in an insane asylum by a guy who would go and minister to the sick folk there. And Cooper was converted, and he just happened to be a very gifted artist and poet and musician. And he got out of the the asylum and uh, met a guy named John Newton, who you might have heard of. He was a former slave trader turned Christian turned hymn writer. He wrote this hymn called Amazing Grace that some people have heard. And uh, Newton and Cooper spent a lot of time together writing hymns. And once Newton found out what Cooper's story was, he encouraged Cooper to write a hymn about his life. And so Cooper wrote this hymn called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And the most powerful lines from that hymn uh, go like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's, That's the message of Ruth. Even here in this story. Ruth and Naomi begin to get a glimpse of how, even though it looks like God is against them, God has never, ever for a second, turned his loving face away from these two women. 
And God will never for a second turn his loving face away from any of you if you connect to Jesus. I want to show you real quick how these two women begin to see that, and then we're done. First, how does Ruth see it? Well, look at what Boaz says to Ruth there in verse 12. I love this line, probably my favorite part of the chapter. Boaz says, the Lord repay you for what you've done, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful line that is. Now, here's why this is amazing. We have zero evidence. Listen, we have no evidence that Ruth has come back to Israel because she's been converted. There's no evidence of that at all. None. She's not going to follow Israel's God. She's going to follow Naomi. But what Boaz is saying here to her is that Ruth, uh, Ruth, you're following Naomi here is actually the real God drawing you to himself and placing you under his protective wings. It's a way of Boaz preaching the gospel to Ruth. Boaz is saying God shadows and shelters people who are outsiders to him, like Ruth, from sin and from hell and from death through his grace. That's what that beautiful symbolism means. It's one of the best pictures in the Bible of what God's like. It's the picture of God taking care of his, his little kids like, like a bird takes care of her little chicks. Now that can be really sentimental and you might want to stitch that and put it up on your kitchen uh, and that's great, but that's not really the depth of what this image is about. In fact, the image is a lot more powerful. I mean, have you ever thought of this? Have you ever like stared out your window on a night when there's like a furious storm happening? Like wind, like we're talking sideways rain, right? And have you ever, ever wondered, I wonder what the birds do in the trees when a storm like that is happening? Here's what this image is about. What the birds do is they seek protection from mama. They go under their mom's wings and the mama bird takes the beating of rain and wind for her babies. And here's the point, because God has sheltered you from sin in Jesus. Because God has sheltered you from sin in Jesus, you can be sure that he will shelter you from every storm of life that rolls through. Even if you can't see how at the time, God structures the fabric of your lives in such a way. He structures the fabric of your lives in such a way that you get his help when you need it most and not a moment too soon. Where do you need his help? Where do you feel the storm coming? You can take refuge under his wings. He, he sees you. He loves you. Go to him. Trust him. Last thing, we also begin to see Naomi. <laughs> we begin to see Naomi awakening to grace. I love this. <laughs> Ruth comes home, 30 pounds of grain in hand, and Naomi's like, what? She's stunned. She's shocked. She's like, best case scenario, right? 30 pounds of food. And uh, look at what she says. Remember, everything's gone bad for Naomi. She's mired in bitterness. But verse 20, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, guess what word that is? Hesed, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whose kindness? God's kindness, the Lord's kindness. This is the first positive statement that Naomi has made about God in the entire story. What's the point? Listen to how Ian Duguid puts it. Naomi was beginning to see that the Lord was not out to get her. In fact, he was still able and willing to smile upon her. Naomi's beginning to learn what all of us need to learn. 
what all of us need to relearn, what all of us need to remember, what Advent teaches, that even in the dark, even in the storm, the smile of the Lord for you in Jesus is unchanging. The smile of the Lord for you in Jesus is unchanging. The cross proves that. God is for you. All will be well. The Spirit calls you to faith in that promise. Will you trust God? So I started with Tim McGraw. Let me close with Bob Dylan. How about that? Great theologian. In his song, Shelter from the Storm, here's what Dylan says. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes and blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, she said. I'll give you shelter from the storm. That's, that's the language of the gospel. God, in his furious grace, gives us shelter from the storm, even when we don't recognize it at the time. Can you believe that? Let's pray.